This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. In the year 2000, an unbelievably brutal and shocking series of crimes rocked the city of Wichita, Kansas. What began as simple robberies quickly began to devolve into carjackings, then acts of violence, followed by a terrifying home invasion, hours of torture, and executions in a snowy field. There have been shows and podcasts made about the Wichita horror, but people usually skimp out on the details of what actually happened inside of that home in Wichita on the cold December night. We are going to tell you the full story. And I have to tell you guys, to everyone listening online, please listen to this episode with caution. We are going to discuss some vile, disgusting, and absolutely reprehensible things in this podcast. This is not for the faint of heart. Trigger warnings include abuse, sexual violence, and obviously, murder. This is the disturbing true story of the Wichita Horror, and you're listening to Murder in America. Kansas, an innocent city located in central Kansas where locals will tell you that life is good. With a population of less than 400,000 people, Wichita is a decently sized city in the middle of Kansas. I've passed through Wichita many times while heading up from Texas to visit family in South Dakota, and the place really does seem innocent. It seems like the perfect place to raise a family, a safe, wholesome community where peace and happiness can be found amongst the population. But that is precisely what made Wichita the perfect place for predators to strike in December of the year 2000. But before we get into the Wichita horror, let's discuss the formation of Wichita itself. Archaeological evidence places human habitation in the area of present-day Wichita as early as 3000 BC. It was inhabited by the Quivira, or Wichita tribes, up until the 1750s when they were driven south by the Osage. The land was occupied by various tribes up until the time of the Civil War, when famed trader and settler Jesse Chisholm established a trading post in the area. This is when modern-day Wichita really began to form, 
and form it did. Wichita, surprisingly, has played an important role in the commercial history of America. Over the years, Wichita became a commerce hub and specifically a major production point for American aircrafts. During World War II, Wichita was the home of Boeing Plant No. 1. In addition to producing aircrafts, Wichita was also the birthplace of two classic American food franchises, Pizza Hut and White Castle. With a low cost of living and an extremely low crime rate in the year 2000, Wichita really seemed like a great place to start a family, especially when you consider the holidays. Christmas time in Wichita is magical. The heavy snowfall coats the streets and the houses, and Christmas decorations and lights illuminate the land. In addition, a large percentage of the population is Christian, so people take Christmas very seriously around the city. And our story today takes place around Christmas time. But although Wichita may sound like some sort of idyllic Kansas wonderland, void of crime and coated with sprinkles, that's simply not the case. In reality, Wichita has a lot of connections to famous murderers. And before we talk about the Wichita horror in today's story, let's discuss a few of these infamous incidents. The biggest name in crime to come from Wichita, if you weren't already thinking of it yourself, was Dennis Rader, BTK, or Bind, Torture, Kill. Dennis Rader lived in the suburb of Park City, right outside of Wichita proper. He was born in 1945, but it didn't take long for Dennis to begin developing sick tendencies. From a young age, Raider experienced sadistic sexual fantasies dealing with the torture of trapped and helpless women. He also at the time showed his potential future serial killer tendencies by torturing, killing, and hanging small animals to a point where his family began to notice. Also, as an adolescent, Raider seemed to act on his voyeuristic desires by peeping on his female neighbors while he was wearing female clothing, including underwear that he had stolen himself from unwilling women's drawers, and by choking himself with ropes while masturbating. Eventually, Raider would become the most notorious killer from the Wichita area. During his blood-soaked murders, Dennis Raider killed a total of 10 individuals. And although for a serial killer, this number may be on the lower side of the average body count, it was the circumstances, the brutality of his crimes, coupled with the fact that he went uncaptured while taunting the local media for over 40 years that really made the story of BTK so terrifying. Another frightening aspect of his murders was that most of the time, Raider entered people's residences while they were sleeping or even hid inside the homes for extended periods of time waiting for the perfect time to strike. We could obviously do an entire podcast on BTK, and we wanted to, but we felt like the brutality of the Wichita horror and the fact that nobody really knows about it are the reasons why it needs to be covered. But the BTK killings weren't the only famous murders to occur in Wichita. No matter what side of the abortion debate that you're on, obviously, it's never okay to kill a doctor just to prove your point. But in 2009, that's exactly what happened to a man named George Tiller. Tiller was a physician who unintentionally became famous in America for his decades of effort to help provide women with access to abortions and reproductive health care. He was known as an advocate for women's rights and a proponent of universal access for all to women's health care, and was also a lightning rod for conservatives in the debate about abortion. For example, conservative pundit Bill O'Reilly consistently and constantly referred to George Tiller on his show The O'Reilly Factor as Tiller the Baby Killer. And Tiller was no stranger to violence. 
1986, his clinic was firebombed by a conservative extremist. And in 1993, a woman named Shelly Shannon, an anti-abortion extremist, approached Tiller while he was in his car and fired a number of rounds at him using a semi-automatic pistol. This wounded Tiller in both arms, but he survived, and Shelly Shannon was sent to prison. But sadly, Tiller would go on to suffer the exact fate that Shelly Shannon had wanted for him. It was an average Sunday in 2009, and Tiller was serving as an usher at his church in Wichita. As he handed out pamphlets to patrons of the church, a man by the name of Scott Roeder approached him in the crowd and shot him directly in the side of the head. before fleeing the scene. Although Roeder was swiftly apprehended and brought to justice, paramedics couldn't save Dr. Tiller. And he died that day for the cause which he had fought for his entire life. And these aren't even all of the famous murders committed in Wichita. We could go on for days telling stories of disappearances and famous killing sprees that happened there in the city. But still, none of them match the brutality, the depravity, the pure extreme terror that saturates the story of the Wichita horror. So let's finally begin on the story. And once again, I really, really do want to warn you guys, this gets very dark. Let's set the scene. It's December in the year 2000 and citizens of Wichita are preparing for Christmas. Houses are decorated, presents have been purchased and wrapped, and church services are packed every Sunday while people grow excited for the holidays. Spirits are up and people seem to be ready to celebrate for it's the first holiday season of the new millennium. The most popular toy that year was the Razor Scooter and a bunch of brand new movies were about to be released into theaters, including the Coen brothers, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But what the people of Wichita didn't know was that hell was about to ride into town in the form of two random men from Dodge City. It's December 8th, 2000. It was a dark, windy night, and the winter that year in Kansas was brutal. A 23-year-old assistant baseball coach named Andrew Schreiber was about to leave a local convenience store after picking up a can of Skoll chewing tobacco. He enters into his car and shuts the door, when suddenly, as he looks out into the night, he notices a pistol being pointed at his face by a stranger. This stranger forces his way into Schreiber's vehicle and, still holding a gun to Schreiber, tells him to start driving. A moment later, he directs Schreiber to pull over so that his accomplice can join him in the car for the abduction and robbery. Throughout this prolonged affair while Schreiber is being held hostage at gunpoint, he's instructed to drive to three different ATMs and to slowly empty out all of the cash in his bank accounts. He does as instructed up until his bank card begins denying new withdrawals and eventually the carjackers lead him out to an isolated parking lot. Fearing death, Schreiber begins to pray and eventually parks his vehicle. The two men then proceed to point guns at his car and shoot out his tires, leaving Schreiber unharmed. The two then drive away in another vehicle and Schreiber, shaken, immediately phones the police. Schreiber identified the perpetrators of the abduction and robbery as two African-American males, but that was basically all the information that he had on these two criminals, and sadly, Schreiber would be one of only two victims of the Wichita horror to escape with his life. Three days later, on December 11th, 2000, a 55-year-old librarian named Ann Walenta, a member of the Wichita Symphony Orchestra, was driving home from a rehearsal late that night when she notices that a vehicle seemed to be following her. The driver was keeping their distance, but every time that she made a lane change, the car behind her did the same. It seemed to be mirroring her every move. 
Anne eventually pulls into her driveway, but was on edge at this phantom car that had followed her down her own street. As Anne sits in her car, she watches the vehicle head to the end of the street, circle the cul-de-sac, and stop in the road directly behind her vehicle. Adrenaline immediately begins to rush through her veins, and to her horror, two men hop out of the car and rush to her driver's side window, brandishing pistols. She rolls her window down, and one of the men points a pistol at Anne and demands that she give him money. As you know, humans are built with a fight-or-flight instinct. And for Anne, her choice to choose flight as a response to this situation would carry grave consequences. As she puts her car into reverse and attempts to flee the scene, one of the men opened fire into her vehicle, firing a total of seven rounds, several of which strike Anne. The vehicle then rolls backwards and comes to a rest after bumping into a curb. Anne then collapses onto her steering wheel, sounding the vehicle's horn. The perpetrators immediately flee the scene, and a neighbor of Anne's calls the police. Anne actually managed to survive the incident long enough to provide details on what the perpetrators looked like and how the whole incident went down. But unfortunately, she passes away a few days later in the hospital. So, who were these two men? Police didn't have a single clue at this point. But let's skip forward a few days. It's 1.45 a.m. on December 15th, 2000, a cold, quiet night in Wichita, when dispatch receives a frightening 911 call. And this is what they hear. We need the ambulance. Okay, what's going on there? Well, we've got a girl who just came at our door, and she's naked and bleeding, and she said her friends have been shot. These two men broke into our house, and they held us, and they took everything, and they executed my four friends, and I've been shot in the head. We need an ambulance. After hearing the details of this call from dispatch, Matthew Lynch, a deputy sheriff, responds to the call and heads out to the isolated soccer field where the caller claimed the bodies would be. And I can't imagine what he felt as he was heading out there. And as Lynch would later go on to say on the episode of Oxygen series, Killer Siblings, as he arrived at the scene of the crime, he realized that he was the only officer who had initially responded. The location was so far out of the way, so isolated, that he was the officer that was the closest to the area. As he gets out of his patrol cruiser, Lynch notices how dark the area is. It's a cold, snowy night, and he instantly notices a car at the nearby intersection, abandoned with its engine off. Holding his gun up, ready to apprehend a suspect, Lynch slowly crunches through the snow, approaching the vehicle, and to his horror, he discovers the dead bodies of four individuals lying face down in the snow. Each had been executed with a shot to the head. Next to the four bodies was a depression in the snow, left by a woman who had escaped and managed to call the police, a woman whose identity has never been revealed. She has, since the time of this crime and through the subsequent trials, only been known as H.G., the next morning, as police scramble to record HG's account of the horrific events of the night before and begin processing the home where most of the events happened, they stumble across a shocking and disgusting crime scene. 
Not only had four of the five residents of the suburban home been murdered, but they had been tortured, sexually assaulted, and the house had been thoroughly robbed. It's at this point when investigators hear that two African-American men had entered the home, demanded money, and searched for valuables to steal, that they are finally able to connect the dots between the series of crimes that took place over nine days in Wichita. It had finally become clear to the police that for the last week, these two African-American males had been engaging in a terror spree across the city that had left five people dead and two people shaken for life. Now, there were rumors that the previous crimes had been connected, but they weren't a firm connection until now. Remember Andrew Schreiber, who had been abducted and forced to empty out his bank accounts? And Ann Walenta, the cellist who was murdered in her own driveway while attempting to flee from an attempted robbery? It seemed like the two perpetrators had carried out all of these crimes. And this last event, this senseless torture and massacre of five individuals, four of whom ended up dying and one of which survived with their life, proved to be the breaking point in the case as HG, the surviving victim, was able to provide police with descriptions of the men, a short list of the items that were stolen from the home, a list which included a large television, and a description of the vehicle that they had stolen from one of the victims and were most likely driving around the city in at the moment. So, as the media arrives at the scene of the crime and begins disseminating this information about suspects and their vehicle to the public, police desperately hope that somebody will see these descriptions on the news and call in a tip. And that day, they struck the jackpot. A short time after the descriptions of the suspects were released to the media, the police receive a tip. Somebody in an apartment complex in Wichita had noticed a Dodge Dakota truck in their parking lot that morning and it matched the description of the vehicle that the perpetrators were driving. Soon after dispatch relays this call, dozens of cops swoop in on the complex and seal it off so that no one can leave. As investigators begin to question those who live in the apartments about where these perpetrators may have gone, a resident approaches them in the parking lot and informs them that earlier that day, they had helped an African-American male carry a large television into an apartment on the third floor. Instantly, police knew that they had one of their men. As officers approached the door with guns drawn, it was so quiet that you could hear a pin drop. A killer was hiding in the apartment in front of them. Someone that had tortured multiple people and played a part in the murders of five. The lieutenant gives the call to knock on the door and officers are greeted by a female. As they talk to her, they hear the sounds of a sliding glass door being opened on the other side of the apartment and are forced to break through the door and enter the room. An African-American male matching the description of the perpetrator attempts to flee, but quickly hits the ground and gives himself up. This is the first time that investigators are given a full look at one of the perpetrators and are able to identify him. The man's name is Reginald Carr and his brother, Jonathan, the other half of the murderous duo, is still somewhere out in the city. Around noon that day, 11 or so hours after the bodies of the victims are found in the snow, a mother living in a neighborhood in Wichita calls in a tip. She knew where Jonathan Carr was hiding. Apparently, Jonathan had showed up to her house earlier that morning to hang out with her daughter, and after seeing a description of the perpetrator on the news, the mother had decided to check this random young man's coat pockets in search of a gun, in fear that he had showed up to her house packing a loaded weapon. But upon searching the jacket, she had stumbled upon an engagement ring, an item that HG had described as being stolen from the home the night before, and this mother knew that there was a murder suspect sitting on her couch. 
So she sneaks out to a neighbor's house, calls the police, and before long, every available unit is out on the street, calling for Jonathan Carr to exit the home and surrender. But before police can apprehend him, Jonathan takes out running from his side door of the house and manages to evade police on foot for a brief moment before he's taken to the ground and finally apprehended. This is the first time that the two perpetrators are properly identified. And this is the first time that anyone in the community is able to see their faces. Over the course of a week, they had quickly become the villains, the murderous outcasts that had haunted the city of Wichita, committing the string of crimes that would eventually be known as the Wichita Massacre or the Wichita Horror. Before she passed away, Anne Walenta was able to identify Jonathan Carr and Andrew Schreiber, the carjacking and kidnapping victim, was able to identify Reginald. The police knew that they had their perpetrators, but faced with overwhelming evidence against them, the Carr brothers refused to speak to investigators. It would be almost two years before the trial of the Carr brothers, but legal proceedings finally began on October 7th, 2002. The trial lasted approximately three weeks and the Carr brothers were charged with 113 offenses, including kidnapping, robbery, four counts of capital murder, one count of first degree murder, and rape. Now, you may be asking yourself, where did some of these charges come from? Who were those people found in the snow? And how did it escalate to this point? Well, the jury found those answers out when on October 9th, 2002, the woman who survived the murders of her four friends, HG, took the stand and testified. And her account of the night of December 14th, 2000 is one of the most shocking things that personally I've ever read or heard. Please, if you are listening right now, I want to break out of the podcast and person to person warn you that a lot of what you're about to hear is extremely graphic, extremely disturbing, and will really stick with you if you choose to listen. All of this was taken directly from HG Survivor's testimony, a report that I found in its entirety online. And listener discretion is heavily advised. So, according to HG, on the night of December 14th, 2000, she was relaxing at home with her friends and her boyfriend. There were inches of snow on the ground, and it was a dark, cold Thursday evening. HG was a local teacher, and her boyfriend Jason was a local high school teacher, and the two had been dating for years. Friends of the couple had been nagging Jason to propose to HG, and tragically, the week before the massacre, Jason had finally taken the step and purchased an engagement ring which he kept hidden in the popcorn tin in the bedroom that the couple shared. He had planned on proposing to HG during the holiday season, most likely on Christmas. In addition to HG and Jason, there were three other people in the home that night. The house had three bedrooms. One was HG and Jason's, another was home to Brad Heike, a director of finance with a local financial services company, and the other to Aaron Sander, a former financial analyst who was at the time studying to become a priest. A woman named Heather Muller was also in the home that night. She was dating Aaron Sander and was a local preschool teacher. All of these people were upstanding citizens working their hardest to contribute to society, young too, and they all had promising futures ahead. But horror was about to come knocking on their front door. It's about 11 p.m. that night on December 14th. The teachers in the house had just finished grading their papers. Brad and Jason had watched their show ER together in the downstairs of the home. And HG and Jason were sitting, relaxing in the bed with the lights turned off, ready to go to sleep. Suddenly, there was a knock at the door. 
and the porch light near Jason's bedroom window illuminates. Jason and HD hear a conversation occurring outside of the doorway of their home, and they assume that it's Heather and Aaron having a chat. But suddenly, the door to Jason's bedroom comes crashing in, and Aaron is tossed onto the bed with HG and Jason. HG and Jason notice that there are two random African-American men standing in their doorway, and they instantly demand to know who else is in the house. After being informed about Brad and Heather, one of the Carr brothers heads out into the dark home to collect the two other individuals, while the other holds the three in Jason's bedroom. Soon, all five residents of the home are in the same room, being held at gunpoint. And this is when the story gets really dark. The Carr brothers, both holding loaded pistols, point them at the group and demand them to all get completely undressed. And following the orders of their captors, the individuals in the group remove all articles of clothing and are left exposed and afraid. The brothers then begin to ransack the home in search of valuables. After finding no cash and nothing of real value, they demand to know who had ATM cards. Everyone in the group raised their hands and told the brothers approximately how much they had in their accounts. And after learning this information, the Carr brothers, once again holding loaded weapons, then direct Heather and HG out of the bedroom and into an adjacent room that housed a wet bar. Threatening them with violence, Heather and HG were then forced to perform oral sex on each other while the Carr brothers watched. About five to ten minutes later, the brothers ordered Heather back into the bedroom, leaving HG naked and on the floor in the adjacent room. And they next bring out Brad Heike and force him to have intercourse with HG. After a few minutes, they then send Brad back into the bedroom and drag Jason, HG's boyfriend, out into the adjacent room and force him to perform intercourse with HG as well. But after a few moments, and this is according to the ad verbatim testimony of HG in the courtroom, one of the Carr brothers says, that's his girl, don't let him do it with his girl. So they take Jason and throw him back into the bedroom before bringing out Aaron, the young man who was studying to be a priest, and order him to rape HG as well. He initially resisted and couldn't achieve an erection, but the Carr brothers began to beat him in the head with the butt of their guns and demanded that he perform. Aaron pleaded, saying, I can't do it, I don't want to do it. But after being continuously struck with the butts of the guns, he eventually submitted to the Carr brothers' sadistic request and was forced to perform intercourse with HG. After a brief moment, the brothers then grabbed HG and shoved her into the closet with Jason and Brad and forced Heather out into the hallway where her boyfriend, Aaron, was awaiting. And the testimony of these events, once again, is based solely on HG's memory. But the events of this paragraph were repeated once again, except this time, each man in the group was forced to perform intercourse with their friend, Heather, one at a time, while the Carr brothers watched and pointed guns. Aaron once again couldn't achieve an erection, and this time he was struck and beaten with a golf club, while the Carr brothers told him that he had until 11.54 to get hard. That's a direct quote. It was 11.52 at the time that they made this comment, and they counted right up until the digital alarm clock in the bedroom struck 11.54, while they continued to beat him with the golf club. After a few minutes, the forced sexual assault of the group was finally over. In HG's testimony, she claimed that while she and the other men were in the closet, no one spoke a word, and the only sounds that she could really make out were moans of pain from Heather out in the hallway, and whispers of conversation. And I'm sorry about that last paragraph. It's really hard to read and even harder to listen to, but it's important to understand the depravity of these crimes. This wasn't just a robbery gone wrong. The Carr brothers, Jonathan and Reginald, were pure evil. I've never heard of a home invasion that has taken such a disgusting, twisted turn. 
It showed jurors that these two brothers weren't just financially motivated in their violence. They seemed to genuinely enjoy it. After this sequence of sexual assaults, the Carr brothers then forced the victims to drive one by one to various ATMs to withdraw as much cash from their bank accounts as they could in one night. Before she was taken to the ATM, HG was raped by one of the Carr brothers on the floor of the house, and during her ride with the other Carr brother, there wasn't much conversation. Aaron Sander was taken last to the ATM, and upon HG's arrival back to the home, she and Heather were then repeatedly raped while in the bathroom in the home. And at one point throughout this assault, while the Carr brothers were rummaging through the home in search of valuables, they came across Jason's engagement ring. This was a complete shock to HG, as she had no idea that Jason had planned to propose to her so soon, after so many years of dating. What a tragic way to find out about your significant other planning to propose to you after a series of sexual assaults, beatings, and robberies while you're being held hostage. HG said during her testimony that there were no real words exchanged between her and Jason after the ring was found. It should be noted that the ring was stolen by the Carr brothers and that Reginald and Jonathan both participated in the final sexual assaults of both Heather and HG that occurred after the ring was found. And once again, guys, I'm sorry that we have to tell you all of these just absolutely horrible details. But it is important to understand fully what happened that night. It's important to hear these terrible details so that you can fully just understand the depravity and the gravity of these crimes. These really weren't just robberies. And on top of that, they weren't just murders. These were crimes fueled and driven only by pure evil. After this final sequence of sexual assault perpetrated by the Carr brothers, they then gathered Brad, Aaron, Jason, Heather, and HG and forced them into Aaron's Honda Accord and Jason's Dodge Dakota truck. They began to drive out into the snowy night. The three men were being held in the trunk of Jason's Honda Accord, while Heather was in the passenger seat of the Honda and HG was in the passenger seat of the Dakota truck. The two car brothers were driving the vehicles. Eventually, after a long, dark, silent drive, the Carr brothers pulled the vehicles over on the side of the road near a new subdivision that was under construction, a road bordering the desolate Stryker soccer complex. All five friends were then forced out of the vehicles, some half, others fully naked, and were ordered to kneel in the snow in front of the Honda. One by one, they were shot and killed execution style. First, Heather Mueller, the preschool teacher. Then, Aaron Sander, the former financial analyst who was studying to become a priest. Next, Brad Haiga, the director of finance with a local financial services company. Then, Jason, HG's soon-to-be fiancé, the local teacher. And finally, HG was the last in line. There was a moment of silence, and then a gunshot. Moments later, HG came through, back from the gray state of vision that she had entered when the bullet had struck the back of her head, and she felt a kick in her back as she fell forward into the snow. 
Astoundingly, the bullet had struck a plastic beret that HG had been wearing in her hair that night and had deflected from entering her skull. As she laid in the snow, HG sat in a state of shock, playing dead. The Carr brothers then entered back into Jason's truck and proceeded to run over the dead bodies of HG's friends and HG herself. But as the lights of the truck faded off into the distance and silence filled the open air, HG began to realize that she was alive. Quickly, once she knew she was alone, she bolted up and began to check her friends for signs of life. Jason's head was squirting blood and his eyes were filling with fluid, but it was at that moment that HG determined that if she wanted to survive, she needed to get on her feet and move now. And move she did. Running frantically through the snow in the dark, HG screamed into the night for help. Here's how she described this moment in her courtroom testimony. I waited until I couldn't see headlights anymore. I got up, I looked at everybody. Everybody was face down. Jason was next to me. I rolled him over. There was blood squirting everywhere. So I took off my sweater and I tied it around his head to try and stop it. He had blood coming out of his eyes. I tied the sweater around his head. Then I went over to Brad and I was saying everybody's names. And then I realized it wasn't going to do me any good to stay there. So I started looking around to see where I could run to. And there were lights directly to the west of us, quite a ways off, and I thought that it was an airport. So I assumed it was some sort of farming type thing. So assumed there probably wasn't going to be a phone or anywhere to get help there. So I looked off towards 96 Highway, which is visible. And there was a house to the southwest that had Christmas lights on. And I started running towards it because it was the only thing you could see. And finally, we reached the end of our story. It had been nine days of terror in Wichita, Kansas. But the next day, like we stated earlier, the police apprehended the Carr brothers while they were hiding and brought the two to justice. After a short trial and another short sentencing hearing, both Jonathan and Reginald Carr were sentenced to death. And there they sit, on death row in Kansas to this very day, wasting away considering the sins of their past as they wonder just what's going to happen to them after they die themselves. Christmas time in Wichita. It's beautiful, yet it's somber. I was actually in Wichita around Christmas last year, and I paid a visit to the house where most of the Wichita horror took place, the home where Jason, Brad, Aaron, Heather, and HG were living on the night that the crimes took place. There was snow on the ground, Christmas decorations all around, and yet there was a permeating silence in the air. And it struck me just how normal this neighborhood was, just how calm it seemed to be, 20 years almost to the day after the Wichita horror. And that's the most terrifying aspect of this case, the fact that the Carr brothers chose all these people completely at random. They chose Andrew Schreiber because they saw him outside of his car at a gas station. They chose Ann Malenta because they saw her driving down the road. And they randomly chose the home of the five individuals who were tortured simply because they could. The Carr brothers didn't know where they were headed that night, who they were going to rob, what crimes they were going to commit. They just chose a random house in a suburban neighborhood and knocked on the front door. This episode should really serve as a reminder to always lock your doors. Lock your windows. Protect yourself. You never know who might come knocking late at night, just what they might want, or even 
what they might be planning to do. The residents of that suburban home back in 2000 thought that somebody might have needed help, but instead, they wanted terror. This story really makes me want to lose trust in strangers, to watch my back more, and to guard my home. Because you really don't know who might be waiting in the cold outside, watching, sitting, observing, deciding on which door to knock on, excited to enact their own reign of terror. Hey everybody, it's Colin here. Thank you for listening to this brand new episode of Murder in America. Hello to all the new fans that are out there. I just waved my hand (laughs) in my own apartment. Courtney's at work right now. I'm sorry that this episode was so disturbing, but I've always felt some weird attraction to the story. It's just insane to me that the Carr brothers chose these victims completely at random, just a house. And when I was there, it really was just very normal. It made me think, who's gonna come knocking on my door, you know? Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Murder in America. We're posting videos of these murder houses and locations on our Patreon. Consider becoming a patron. There's going to be a brand new episode, a full podcast on there this week. And let me ask you guys, at that isolated soccer field where Brad, Aaron, Jason, and Heather lost their lives, do you think that their spirits might be in the area? I wonder what they'd have to say if we could listen. It makes you wonder. The dead don't talk, or do they? Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one, everybody.